You're listening to The Rest of Us on The Rest of Us Podcast Network. Let's face it, we're living through an industrial revolution and that's a pretty exciting thing. But some of the concepts of an industrial revolution and adjacent topics like circular economies, they're complex. So let's talk about them and see how it may affect the rest of us. On this episode, we start peeling back the curtain about how some of the mechanics of the future work. What does it mean to our communities and how did we get here anyway? What are the systems in place that are changing or need to change? Let's imagine the future potential of things like commerce, and we'll do it as told through my personal favorite, golf. And how knowledge and experience may just be where we invest the most. Let's be honest, that's a long time coming. So join me and Keith. Welcome to episode five. So if we look back historically, communities have always held everything together, right? We pull together as a community, we do things as a community, and we survive as a community, all the way back to guilds and legions and localizations and so first the CrossFit gym that I go to is having a Christmas Eve potluck in a white elephant and I'm really excited about it which kind of made me think about religion 2.0 like it's basically almost operating as a church in that way I pay my hundred dollars in gym ties and that's my (laughs) my religion the church of fitness I like it (laughs) but I mean it's a ritual and it's something to do and you do you form communities you know so it's it's in lieu of that and it's making friends at the gym and like those are the things I remember growing up with, right? Going to potlucks at church, and I hated the concept of the religion that it had to be wrapped in. But this is the same thing in a different way. I get fit, which I do enjoy, and I get the community aspect. But like, I guess my point is, it's been really interesting to think about because, in my opinion, that's how it should be, right? We should have things that get us to out into our communities and out helping each other and out talking and become less focused on our jobs. And what's been interesting over the past 20 or 30 years has been that our jobs have become so much of our identity. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because that happens so frequently and it's, it's easy to fall into that trap where that's, you know, that's all I am is what I do. And then you, you spend the next, uh, you know, five or 10 years grinding away at it, you realize that you're not fulfilling the basic needs that you have as a, as a human being, you're not uh, aspiring to anything better. And then you get stuck, you know, and you feel like you've invested so much time into it. And it's kind of the sunk cost fallacy in a way where you feel like I've already invested so much into it. You know, I can't quit now. And, uh, you know, it's, then you, so what do you do? You know, so do you start over or do you stay there and keep grinding until you're dead? You know, and, and to, so to kind of put it to a personal perspective for me, I mean, I was in the army for 12 years and most people say, well, once, once you hit 10 years, I mean, you might as well just do the other 10 and get your retirement. They're like, you're crazy for retiring at, or not retiring for ETSing. I just, I didn't even retire at 12 years. What does ETS uh, mean? uh, And time and service. So it's just when your contract is up and you don't have an obligation to the military anymore. 
Um, and I just, that's it. My contract, you know, it was my, I think, second contract or second contract. Yeah, it was like my third extension and my second contract later, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I either, you know, they were like, hey, you want to re-enlist? And I said, well, what's in it for me? And they said, you'll be indefinite, needs of the army. And I was like, no, thanks. Didn't like that deal? <laughs> no, it's like, that's not anything. Like, you get job stability. You can retire. We can't fire you without an act of Congress. But... <laughs> That's an upside sometimes. But. That, yeah, that's an upside because getting Congress to agree on anything is next to impossible. Yeah. So, yeah. But um, jokes aside, you know, sometimes, you know, it's okay. Like to say, uh, I'm not this thing that I've been working at, you know, like this can't define me for the rest of my life. And, and I have to go and find something different. And that's what I did. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that's exactly kind of similar to what I was thinking about, right? That especially over the past 10 or 20 years, we've developed this idea that we are our jobs. They've become part of our identity. And mm -hmm. so we work so much and then we go to happy hours with the people that we work with and we talk about work because that's the only common language between anything. <laughs> and... And then to your point, we kind of like get stuck into it. But I think what I was thinking about as well was knowledge is power. And we've concentrated this knowledge because it means that your ability to come share that knowledge outside of broadcast systems like we're using right now, these didn't exist, right? This has been something that kind of came about from the fourth industrial revolution. But up until even two or three years ago, the idea that we could share this knowledge was a bullshit term bullshit idea and that's that's changing which is exciting and we've seen this with kind of the idea of working from home as well that i guess what i was thinking through was the process of being a consultant and consultants have a ton of information and they've helped solve really really complex problems but the catch is that they're like roving mercenaries their life are life is to go to a client site then go back to the hotel and solve the problems of the client site and then repeat that basically indefinitely. And because that's their life, they don't have a work-life balance. They hang out with consultants all day and getting that information out has always been really difficult. And if we put people in a work from home environment, now suddenly you can kind of have this digital work mode, if you will, and you can take off that hat and you can go put on your community hat and be a guy at the gym. I guess my life has been, you know, more like grind, you know, I switched from one grind hat to the other, right? Like, oh, it's the work grind hat. Oh, it's the school grind hat. Oh, it's, you know, uh, you know, it's the, the dealing with my depression grind hat. Like, uh, it's the clean the house grind hat. And everything starts to feel like a job, uh, you know, after, after a while, balancing everything when you lack the community side and you, and you lack outside contact, you start to feel like the mental health uh, effects of not having those things because we're social animals. Um, not to hijack the conversation like, oh, me. This <laughs> is, talk this away, is a me conversation now. Have at it. No, seriously. So you have to engage in the community. And it wasn't until I started doing things like volunteering and 
spending time with friends, doing things that didn't revolve around my job, that I started to find better mental health uh, in my life. Well, I think a lot of it is, it gets so caught up in identity to go back to that for a second. Like I think of, there's, I guess there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> First, I think we really struggle as people to be alone. And then second, like we've gotten so busy that we don't really know how to be alone. Like it's hard to be comfortable sometimes to sit alone with your thoughts and think and um, right, you get intrusive thoughts and if you're not used to it, your brains are squishy and suddenly we're dealing with like all of these intrusive things that we would normally beat and tamp down with things like cleaning or work or we just didn't have time for it to process. And first, I think it doesn't give us the ability to make great discoveries anymore. Right? Like I think of before this third industrial revolution, we, people would sit and they'd think about stuff for days and days and days because they had nothing else to do. And it led to so much uh, technological innovation. But then second, and it was actually you that made me think of this a little bit today, believe it or not, it was, I think on the last podcast or one of them, we talked about how people from where you and I grew up were just like drinking buddies, right? And it ended up being that like one was a PhD physicist at NASA and the other was like ran the bowling alley right but they were friends and that was a community and it wasn't about I can only hang out with PhD physicists because they're only going to say what I have to say and I already know their opinions because we work with them all day mm -hmm. and it was more about having different opinions and perspectives and friendships and you wouldn't even know like the other part that was kind of profound about when you saw it was like oh I never made this connection right between our school mascot of a rocket ship and everybody being from nasa right like, yeah because yeah. it didn't matter what your job was yeah the 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 glenn research centers right there yeah yep. that's pretty cool yeah and and i didn't ever make that connection i was like huh, rockets why are we rockets which kind of makes you wonder why was uh why was that other town the pirates you know right. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about that the other day yeah Shoreman makes sense. But. Yeah, long, yeah, the long term, yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Rest of Us. One of the things that drives me crazy about American culture is that we like to bury the truth. <laughs> we bury things we're shameful of. We don't talk about that. <laughs> Scratch, delete, delete. Delete. I will, if I will edit that out. <laughs> but uh no yeah it's that's true we don't we you know we we very much uh we hide what we cannot glorify yeah and we're sold things and we're sold the idea of things that are hard right so i was actually just talking to my mom about making pasta and i used to think it was really hard until i tried it and i was like this is really simple it's like Play-Doh. It's like half of baking cookies. Like you just smash flour and eggs together and yep. then cut it. You're like, oh. Yeah, it's a pasta. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And so, but what got me thinking about this, like what if something actually bad happened and you go, we, we go back to the day where you issued your rationed flour, nobody would know what to do with this flour, right? Like if I give you flour and eggs and like baking soda and a couple pounds of meat and a bunch of vegetables because that's what we could grow in our little community here like people would be like i have no idea how to cook and it's interesting to me that 
first that knowledge got lost, right? We sent people, we started measuring everything by GDP. And since cooking at home and teaching kids the skills to cook, um, and since parents weren't home to teach those skills, we could no longer pass those things down. But second, mm -hmm. how much we have built this empire on pasta is hard, and we believe that lie. And then how many brands exist at grocery stores that we don't really need? Like you walk to the grocery store, once you learn how to cook, you walk to the grocery store and you're like, I could make like 80% of this stuff with like five ingredients. That's why we have staple foods. You know, I remember that whole, was it? It was like a whole unit in seventh grade history class, like about staple foods. It's probably earlier than that, but you know, what region produces what staple food? Yeah. You know, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. But no, it's, yeah, to, to your point though, like we, yeah, we've, we've become disconnected from the, uh, from the land, I guess, is one way to, is, you know, one, one cliche to borrow. Um, we, yeah. yeah, like we don't do for ourselves anymore. Not only that though, so you start to make on your own, like pasta is a great example because I love making pasta. I've been making pasta for years. And when I went to visit, uh, I went to visit family in New Jersey it was my cousin's wedding, and I was staying at, at uh, you know, my aunt and uncle's house. My aunt said, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna make homemade pasta." And I said, "Oh yeah, great." She said, "I just got a I just got a pasta machine because she you know she got one of the fancy attachments for a KitchenAid mixer." I was like, "Yeah, I know how to use that." And she's like, "She was surprised that I knew how to do it," and so she mixed up the dough, and then I basically took over and made all the pasta, and it was like. A lot of fun you know every was really rewarding everybody you know there was no leftovers that's for sure but it was great it's a lot of fun if we can't figure out how to locally sustain things we can't figure out how to basically bring things back into our own communities then it will get figured out for us right right now we're out of control and we have all kinds of crazy i guess a better way to think about this take it off of food for a second so i was talking to i guess my stepdad like david is his name so i was talking to david about golf and he was talking about these golf clubs that he's looking at and how he's reading all of these reviews and it was it's an off-brand in the sense of it's not one of the big four right so it's mizuno or srixen and he's going back and forth between those two and i think what the exciting part of the future is we can gather all of those data. We have, we have things like shot monitors and launch monitors that are starting to exist. We have a bunch of objective information about golf swings. And if we can build enough of a data cloud, we can basically go, well, this is my golf data. And somebody can go, and this is the best golf club for somebody with your swing, right? And you can actually start to differentiate on this too. You can say, okay, this guy really always toes it. And so we're going to build like a toe specific golf club and we're going to sell it to people with his data set. But the reality becomes that most of this stuff has been within a margin of error from one, one another. And what we're seeing is the shift in data and we're seeing the move toward the technology changes, which means that we no longer need to buy 
golf clubs every year, right? The marketing machine has always told us, go buy all of this stuff because it's really important and it's going to take five yards off your golf game. But what's really happening is we're spending that money on experts and expertise and objective data that we can then see how it relates to us because we're all different, we're not all the same. But how, okay, so that, how does that relate back to the fourth industrial revolution though? Like the fourth industrial revolution is just, I thought that was like the idea that we do things smaller within the community. So how is, how do we make the data, I guess, smaller or more easy to collect? So today we have golf companies that produce a golf club every year or two years. Then they go tell golfers, this will fix your swing and this will make you five yards better or whatever the case might be. And a driver today costs five, $600, right? So to basically outfit yourself with clubs, you're looking at between a grand and two grand every year. Oh, and wow. if the problems that you, yeah, it's expensive. Yeah. And the problem is that if you suck, right? It's not the clubs, it's that you just suck at golf. <laughs> yeah. well, so, so, so I, let's say I drop a few hundred bucks on a halfway decent pair of clubs or set of clubs. And then I put the rest into golf lessons. The reality is that club technology both changes a lot and doesn't change that much, meaning that it's kind of that long tail, right? We can get, it's the 80-20 principle. We can get it probably 80% there. There is differences over the course of 10 or 20 years of equipment, but if you're not good enough to get to that 80%, it really doesn't matter. And so if you start gathering information and playing to, like based on getting expertise from an expert, then that conversation starts to shift. And I guess where I was going was that we shift away from purely capital markets, meaning what changes 10 years from now is we no longer need to build as many golf clubs. We have a bunch of golf clubs that exist because they make a new set every year. So think of all of the golf clubs that exist now in the world, and they're all pretty much within margins of error which means that if we can give you lessons, which is knowledge that can be passed on and you're investing in people and skills and service and knowledge, which really is, in my opinion, the movement of the fourth industrial revolution and not the equipment. And you're no longer buying into the marketing machine, but you're spending your money and time on people. You're first developing community because you become a member of that, that golf club or association. You get to know everybody that's at your golf club. Yeah. And then second, and this is where it gets a little bit scary, that we no longer have businesses that are making a ton of golf clubs because we don't need them, right? We can just reuse the same golf clubs or rent the same golf clubs. I guess from the corporate perspective, what is the incentive for these companies to you know, build less golf clubs? Like, Why would they want to support something like this if it's detrimental to the business as a whole? There isn't, right? That's the risk is that what we're being told is by companies like the Callaways and the TaylorMades and these large, large, large companies that want to spend millions of dollars on marketing telling you this is a better golf club. They don't really care, right? You, you figure out they lied to you and you already bought the golf club and you go, this club sucks too. And so what do you do? They go, well, yeah, we are bad, right? Here's another golf club we'll sell you for 500 bucks that will fix what that one didn't do for you, right? We, we learned quote unquote, but they didn't really learn. They're just a, they're a golf club machine. And so the idea is that if we've concentrated 
all of that power into that brand, which is kind of 20th century capitalism, there is no incentive, which is why we don't talk about it, right? That we have to find channels like podcasts to talk about this because it's an, it's an important but unpopular conversation for the people at the top of that pyramid. And so what the reality is that we break down those silos and you start building golf clubs in each town, right? You could print them, you could make golf shafts, all of these, these things that we're seeing in the supply chain get hung up. If you can start to eliminate those barriers and you start to reuse or recycle clubs, you start figuring out who in your community has golf clubs that you can share, right? There's, there's a bunch of different ways around it that come from collaboration cooperation and sharing some of that knowledge, but it is very much not in how we think of capitalism today. Yeah. So what, what you're saying to me sounds more like a, almost like grassroots uh, cottage industry, you know, but with a, with a more technical, I guess, a more technical vibe to it. So if, if for example, if I'm going to produce golf clubs at my house, right, I need to have the different materials I need to have materials for not only the head, but the shaft and also the handle. And those are just the things that I can think of off the top of my head. I can think of a few things within my, my community. Like we could probably source aluminum for the head. And I don't know, like if you could use like, I don't know, I'm probably going to, I live in Tennessee. So I'm going to use like wood because there's tons of trees for the, for the handle and then probably some kind of leather or, uh, you know, wood for the shaft and then leather for the handle. And then who knows what, you know? Um, so like a regional golf club, right. Something built in Tennessee is also going to look maybe a lot different than something that's built in, uh, Denver or, or California or, you know, first I hadn't considered that. And that's pretty awesome. That's a, that's a cool way to think about it, that you could very much have region specific, differentiation. I think of it from the business perspective where uh, if, if you're familiar with circular economy, so let's talk about golf grips for a second, right? We could, and I'm just spitballing here, but we could maybe find ways to make them out of recycled materials, or we could find things that don't have to come out of the community and companies that know how to recycle can then work with individuals inside of the community. So we're no longer shipping. It's insane, right? We ship I looked at the the markings on my golf driver that I got. The club head was made in China. Then they shipped it to Mexico to put a shaft on it. And they shipped it to the United States to California to, I guess, maybe assemble it. I don't know what they did. And then they shipped that club to me. And so think of, think of the trip that this golf club has taken. Whereas 20, 30 years from now, if we could print that golf club and we could use recycled grips that we can just source from a thousand miles radius we're now not having to have that stuff leave our communities we're reusing right that we can find ways to repurpose stuff and now suddenly we're creating demand which makes it win-win we're not first having all the cost and shipment and pollution and everything that gets caused by that long supply chain but we're finding different uses for the same materials that we already have an abundance of that we don't know how to deal with as it is use tires yeah that's that's really yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and then you get, you know, I could just see someone with, uh, you know, these professional golfers and, and they've got clubs from 
all over the world then you know that they'd have a, a club from you know a course in scotland and then a, a club that they bought at a course in in texas and and they're all for different different things and then you get this exchange going on um and then yeah, you can go ahead oh and then if you like you know break a club right you can replace it like you can save the head and replace the shaft or if the whole thing's just hey this is not a good club at all then you just recycle the whole thing because it's already made out of recycled uh, goods i think you've touched on one of the things that i love about so i am obsessed with mechanical watches like they're oh man <laughs> i love watches but what i love about really? watches yeah i love watches man like like that's what I used to joke about. I said my my future ex-wife was <laughs> going to be. I was reading like it's like I forget the name of the blog, but it's about watches. And somebody had a PhD in horology, which is like the study of watches and time. And I was like, oh man, this is my future ex-wife. So if you're listening, <laughs> give me a call. But no, so I love 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 watches because they're obscenely technical. And one of the things that and they're like. Each one is a their art first, and then there are feet to engineering and technology and problem solving and taking time with your craft. They're very much a discipline art, and that's why I like them. And so the other part that I love about watches is they tell stories. I think of watches that I've owned, collections that I've built and they no longer Which, have. I haven't used my watch all wrong. Mine only tells time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to some people, that's all it needs to do, right? So yeah. they're... There are people that look at watches and they go, they all tell us time. And the reality is that this is probably a quartz watch then. And your quartz watch is far more accurate than my mechanical watch, you know? Um, but I think of the stories that come with watches and I've the ones that I've owned and the reasons that I've liked them or what makes them different. And that's why I love watches. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Rest of Us. To go back, I guess, maybe to the chasm that we can't cross, part of the knowledge silos are comfort, right? That there's a lot of comfort in where I keep getting frustrated with just the conversation is I know I'm pretty smart. I'm not super smart, but I'm pretty smart and I can learn fast. And always having to be the one teaching people instead of being taught stuff, unless I go out on my own to learn stuff is a really exhausting position to be put in. And so to your point about what's in it for me, they're really, I feel like I have to get people up to my level by teaching them stuff, which isn't even what I want to do. And then it's just me constantly digging into this chasm instead of going, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Let's, let's just move forward and we're here and we can have a conversation about why and i think that's even like one of the lessons that the military taught me is like don't think right even skydive and it's not even just the military like i think i remember i used to skydive and i remember being in this is actually kind of true of skydiving in golf right the opposite opposites polar opposites of excitement and the problem with both of those sports is that you go learn something and then there's like hours between you when you use it again, right? So in skydiving, 
you jump out of a plane and then you land and you do all of this other, you might be working on like stability of flight, like body control in free fall, but then you deploy your parachute and you got to land and like do all, do it, pack your chute. And then it's like, you've done so much shit between free fall and jumping again, that it's really hard to get this kind of feedback loop going. And so in the wind tunnels and stuff, right, we've introduced innovations, wind tunnels for golf, uh, wind tunnels for skydiving, launch monitors for golf. They're giving us fast feedback, but sometimes we still think too much, right? I guess that's where I was going with that. You know, we think too much and, and I guess don't react enough. You know, like you spent so much time having to train, having to train people or, or teach people what, what you know, rather than just leaving them, you know, like explaining it as if they already had your knowledge. Yeah. And it's the trust, I guess, right? It boils down to trust. People don't, I have to constantly credentialize myself, which is how we lose power, right? It becomes, I'm just not going to listen to you, or I want you to believe what I believe, which is political think, which works in theory. I'm going to keep saying what I believe, and I hope Mm -hmm. that you agree with me, and you start thinking what I believe, because it's what I believe, and I want you to believe it too. And so it works in theory. In principle, it doesn't work at all, because then you just say, well, that's not what I believe. I believe this other thing, and then we create the division that we see today, right? So when you put people under the right pressure and they have the right information, they're not reacting, they're responding, right? It becomes, don't worry so much about why. This is how we have to do it. We can Mm -hmm. talk about why once we get through it. We're here now, execute, and then we will learn from it and we can revert back. And the problem that I think we face with the fourth industrial revolution stuff, first, there's a lot of us that talked about it and were taught it, and that's our that's one cohort's baseline knowledge. And to get the other cohort to understand that baseline knowledge, there's a lot of education because it's completely fundamentally different than how people think, act, and do. And there's no trust in between the two. So like we're talking high trust, right? Yep. And and the importance of high trust um, when it comes to really any, well, any situation or not, not any situation, but any, like a professional situation or a high, high achieving situation where you have to be able to trust. Risk is is anything, anytime we have to manage risk, the way to manage risk is with trust and we have to be trusted to fail. And we also have to trust our leaders to not lead us to fail unless there's a reason like we have to learn something but then i think that's usually like the setup right it's you might jack this up <laughs> but you'll learn something so yeah well so now. you you definitely have to be willing to let people fail when it's appropriate um you know you hear a lot about the the no fail situation or the um you know, like we can't, we can't drop the ball on this or we, you know, this, we have to do this or, or the, if, if else statement of doom, you know, (laughs) Uh, but we can, I think like, so I mean, these stakes aren't really that high. We're not getting shot at. People aren't dying. Like it really is. It's a self-fulfilling anxiety, right? It's basically you do this because I told you to, or else I fire you and I take away I take away your benefits. I take away your yeah. ability to eat, your pay. Yeah, it's the, the if-else statement of doom. You know, do yep. this, you know, if you don't do this, 
or else you know uh or you know uh i guess the popular term would be carrot versus stick you know if you do your job you you get to keep your job so you get you get a little carrot and then if you do your job really well you might get a bigger carrot and if you don't do your job at all you get the stick yeah and so that's the old way of thinking right so i think what we've talked a lot about chasms chasm crossing (laughs) and i think maybe to explain that for a second i think of it really in like empirical analogies right so we used to have castles and those castles had moats and the moats were designed in such a way that if you were a knight you could not cross them in armor you would drown so they were specifically designed to not be crossed and then you had a drawbridge because that's how you got stuff into the castle right so and then to defend the castle this empire you would just raise the drawbridge and then we saw this again i think the movie shit what was the name of the movie enemy at the gates i think so an enemy at the gates there's this scene that kind of describes the same thing that the allies are trying to set up a communication line like a literal phone line to the other side oh yeah this enemy at the gates yeah yes yeah (laughs) yeah and so every time right the the sniper goes and cuts the line and then he goes back to his sniper nest and sure enough the americans send another guy to replace the wire and they shoot him and this it continues to happen as we cross this chasm of kind of 20th century economics, which is the castle, right? We're trying, we're trying to siege a castle that does not want to be sieged, which is by saying it's empirical and we get into that horizontal versus vertical integration conversation we've had. But the reality is that we have all of the land around the castle, which is kind of nice. And while we might not live in a castle, we can live out here with all of the other stuff and kind of self-sustain which is a better world anyway, right? That um, I would rather live on that side of the chasm. And what continues to happen is we continue to try to send troops and individuals across into this old way of thinking, and we continue to get assassinated. But what's really interesting is we're seeing a shift in the market and in jobs, by which I mean that the CEO of Bentley, I don't know if you saw this, the CEO of Bentley is now like 35. Oh, wow. the, I didn't see that, no. Yeah, the CEO of Twitter is like 32. There's that show about the Inspiration4, which they just went and got four people off the internet and sent them into space, right? Like, like it's totally, things are a-changing, and it's pretty exciting. The future doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. While we may be heading toward a future that looks and feels quite different than today, it poses tremendous opportunity for those brave enough to embrace it. If you like this episode, share it with a friend. Likewise, did something resonate and you want to hear more? What do you want to talk about? Let us know what's on your mind by emailing us at contact at restofusmedia.com. We want to hear from you. Until then, thanks for listening to The Rest of Us. The Rest of Us is currently funded by the donations of our listeners. If you would like to donate, please see our donation link in the description of this podcast. If you own or represent a business and are interested in sponsoring The Rest of Us, please contact us at pr at restofusmedia.com.